Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. Let's pray together. Lord, we just want to thank you for your word this afternoon. We align ourselves with you, Christ, through your word, through your revealed word today, and we believe. Thank you that your loving kindness is better than life, and we take that to mean that what you've done to reconcile us back to you, to be in your presence, is, is better than the necessities of life. It's better than breathing. It's better than eating. It's better than the things that we think we need. It's better than the things that bring us pleasure and entertainment and joy and all of that happiness. It's better to be in your presence than a thousand elsewhere. And so here we are, Lord, your church. We want to receive from you. Put ourselves under the authority of your word and we say, Holy Spirit, teach us today. Cause us to fall more in love with Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. There's a picture on the screen of an elderly Cambodian man. His name is Kang Kekyu. Uh, you probably don't recognize him and have never heard of him before in your life. Um, but among Cambodians, he is well known, um, perhaps under his more infamous military term, Comrade Dutch. In the late 1970s, during the, uh, the Khmer Rouge regime in Cambodia, and under the leadership of Pol Pot, two million Cambodians, among other nationalities, were murdered in one of the worst genocides in history. In the course of four years, two million people lost their lives as Pol Pot sought to create a society to please his own whims. Millions of people died. The process was young people, old people, and children were taken from cities where they had normal jobs, were getting education, and were living, and they were chased into the fields to start a society that Pol Pot wanted. Now, in the process of this, they sifted out the people that they didn't like through torture. They would torture Cambodians, among many others, thousands of them, in order to get information that they wanted. Whether it was true or false, people were tortured. Once they got the information that they wanted, they were then escorted to the killing fields where they were forced to dig their own graves and then bludgeoned to death with iron bars. This is how 20% of the country at that time met their fate. In the middle of that process, they would be housed in prisons and labor camps the most notorious prison camp at that time was a prison called S21. S21 saw the torture and the genocide of 17,000 people. The man you're looking at right now was the head of S21. He personally admitted to being responsible for at least 12,000 of those murders and the subsequent tortures. You're looking at a big sinner right now. What we want to do this afternoon is from the Bible gather for ourselves a deeper understanding of the grace of God. And by a deeper understanding, I don't mean I want to leave this building and know just a little bit more about like a, I, I don't want a clever definition that I could tell my friends. I don't want something that I could write down or remember. I want more than just a cliche. You know what I mean? 
in my study Bible, it'll say grace and it'll say something to the effect of undeserved favor or unmerited kindness. Those things are true, but I want more than that. I want to know grace. I want to understand grace. I want to know where it comes from. I want to know what it does. I want to know what it's made of and I want to know from whom it comes from. I think that three things will happen if we can do that. One is a deeper sense of worship. Two is a deeper sense of mission. And three, you'll just hate sinning a little more than you did when you came in this building. Paul does this very well in Ephesians chapter 2. He explains grace for us, but he doesn't just explain it isolated. He explains it against the backdrop of our sin. Let's start in verse 1. Paul says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now in working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So what Paul is doing in the nine verses that we have ahead of us is he has two different sections. The first one, he's going to speak about humanity like he just did and our condition. The second section, he's going to speak about God and what God has done with sinful humanity. So we're in that first section, the first three verses. And Paul doesn't skimp around with words. He says it from the very get-go. Three, the first three words out of his you were dead. You were dead in your sins and your transgressions. And it's often my inclination, I don't know where this comes from, but it's my immediate inclination to look at people like Comrade Dutch and to point my finger at them and to say, that is the reason. That's the poster child for injustice in the world. Whether it be Dutch or killers or corrupt CEOs or ill politicians or sports stars who have fallen We look at professional golfers who have quote-unquote fallen from grace and we say, there's immorality in a nutshell. If it wasn't for that guy being a bad role model, my kids would be doing fine right now. We need a scapegoat. Paul doesn't have this perspective. Paul points a finger at us. He points a finger at Chris Lazo and he says, you were dead. He doesn't stop there. You were dead. You were walking in sins and trespasses. You were following the world, verse 2. You were following Satan. In verse 3, he says, you were living in the passions of your flesh, carrying out the desires of your body, carrying out the desires of your mind. Flesh, body, mind. Right there, he takes the entire package of what it means to be a person, and he says, you are dead through and through. In verse 3, he says, by nature, you were children of wrath, even as the rest. You know, there's not much worse you can get than a child of God's wrath. 
for you to earn the place to where God's wrath rests and resides upon you, you can't get much lower down on the cosmic chain than that. And Paul says you are children of wrath apart from the grace of God. Now notice, unlike what we are often told, you don't start off decent and then mess up along the way. You weren't born somewhat good and then you sinned and you became a sinner. Paul says by nature you were children of wrath even as the rest. The psalmist said even from your mother's womb you were born into iniquity. We were born this way. By nature we're sinners. We don't sin and then become sinners. We're going to sin because we're sinners but we're sinners that sin. By nature, children of wrath. Notice right after that, he says, even as the rest. So you can throw out the window that somehow in the eyes of God, somebody is worse than another. I don't like that, Chris Lazo. How dare you lump me in the same category as some killer like that? I don't commit adultery. I don't lie. I don't cheat. I don't steal. I pay my taxes. I'm a wonderful Christian. Yes, I sin, but I am not in the same category as somebody like that. Oh. Paul disagrees with you. And Paul, being filled with the Holy Spirit, is probably right. By nature... We're children of wrath, he says, even as the rest. Now, we might not carry out our sin in the same way as somebody else. I doubt that there's a lot of killers in this building. We're not the same in practice. What Paul is saying is we're the same in nature. So someone may take it a little farther than you practically, but we're cut from the same branch. And we suffer with the same sickness. Paul, speaking about humanity, moves on. Now he speaks about God. He devotes a whole three verses to humanity. He devotes the rest of the text to God and what God has done. He says in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Right on. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one may boast. Paul's talking about God now. He was talking about big sinners, now he's talking about big grace. I want you to notice in verses 4 all the way through verse 9, something is happening to people who are dead in their sins, meaning they were dead and now they're made alive. He's speaking about salvation. Sinners are saved. Something extremely supernatural happens in the life of someone who turns to the Lord by grace. And so they were dead in their sins, now they're made alive. So this is a description of salvation. Made alive, seated with him, raised up with him. This is salvation. And all of this hinges upon one phrase in verse 5. By grace you have been saved. 
everything that happens to a sinner who is dead in their sins to make them alive in Christ Jesus happens solely by the grace of God. So I want to know right now, what in the world is the grace of God? If Jesus Christ through the cross can change not only individual lives but turn the entire universe upside down by grace, I want to know what grace is. And I want a little bit more than a cliche that I can put in my pocket. I want to understand it. I want to know it. Salvation happens by grace. Now, we risk with words like grace, losing the reality behind the word. Have you noticed this about Christianity? We've got some words. Trinity, incarnation, justification, sanctification, glorification, whole bunch of occasions. We've got a bunch of words that we use in relation to God and what God has done. We don't just use them on a day-to-day basis at the laundromat or at the grocery store. They just don't work, you know what I mean? My whites have gotten wider because of Tide Ultra Safe bleach. It really sanctified my clothing. <laughs> I was worried for, for a second that my black shirt, my white socks, and my red pants were going to Trinitarianize. It doesn't work. Why? Because God is otherworldly. He's different than us and he does things that are supernatural and beyond our comprehension. And the fact that we need a special vocabulary to describe what God does in the life of a sinner is awesome. And so use those words. But know what they mean. The problem is that if we grow familiar with the word justification, sanctification, incarnation, grace, If we grow familiar with the word and not its meaning, all we're left with are tired phrases and not the reality of God who is a consuming fire. So this is what I'm seeking to do. I hope you'll come with me. Paul seems to explain grace. He's describing the salvation of a sinner by grace. And so we're going to get a little insight from Paul into grace. Look at verse 4. He says, but God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loves us. So we know that we're saved by God. We know that we're saved by grace. But God in his grace is also rich in mercy. Paul wanted to throw that in there. So it's safe to say that grace stems from his mercy. In order to have grace, you first have to have mercy. Also in verse 4, we see that it was with this great love with which he loved us. God saved us because he loved us. So you could also say that grace is grounded in his great love. Grace stems from his mercy. Grace is grounded in his great love. Look at verse 5. Paul says, even when we were dead in our transgressions. So even when we were dead, God saved us. So grace is resolute. That means God doesn't care that you were a sinner and it surely doesn't affect His grace. Grace is unaffected by your deadness. Verse 5, even when we were dead in our transgressions, He made us alive with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So we were made alive with Christ, we see this life-giving, renewing aspect to, to grace. It's 
not this passive thing. Life is being imparted to a dead person. Verse 6, he raised us up with him. Growing up, and even um, in my early 20s, I had this picture of grace because I didn't really know what it was. I, I had all the, ant, like the, the, the clever little answer, it's undeserved favor, but I didn't know what favor was in relation to God. Okay, God has grace towards me. Okay, God is favorable toward me. What does that even mean? Is God like patting me on the back and saying, go get him, kid? When Paul said, God, take the thorn out of my flesh, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Was that some passive thing? Like, hey, Paul, suck it up. Pat on the back. Go get him. That's not what Paul is envisioning here. Grace is not passive. Grace causes a dead person to come alive. It's active. It's compelling. I would even say grace is powerful. Verse 6, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. When you're seated with Jesus Christ in the heavenly places, that means you're approved by God. So here's what we know so far about grace, just from these few verses in Ephesians. Grace stems from his mercy, is grounded in his love, is resolute is life-giving, is active, compelling, powerful, and causes a traitor to be approved by God. So if someone were to come up to me and say, Chris, what's grace? I would probably say, based on these verses, well, grace is when God, in his compassion, actively unswervingly turns you back from the chosen course of your deserved destruction and he brings you to himself to enjoy. So my mom was right. It's getting what you don't deserve. I deserved hell and I got God instead. But do you see how the scripture breathes life into a statement like that? When God shows grace, it's God in his compassion actively, unswervingly turning sinners back from the chosen course of their destruction and bringing them to himself to enjoy. That's grace. Now, if you're still not connecting the dots, it's okay. Let me put it this way. Imagine for a moment that you have $100,000 in debt. Because you have $100,000 in debt and it's uncontrollable, the bank takes away your house, takes away your car, you lose your job and you have no money. And so you're not just in debt, you're $100,000 in debt, starving, homeless, jobless, and to add to that, you have the threat of prison hanging over your head because you still can't pay the debt. To make matters worse, you deserve it because you got yourself into debt. Now imagine someone comes along and they pay off your $100,000 worth of debt. Are you stoked? I'm stoked. Someone pays off your debt, so now you're debt free. What happened is that person showed mercy towards you because really you should have paid off your own debt either with money or by serving time or making amends, whatever it is. You should have paid off your own debt, but someone else paid off your debt 
for you. That was an act of mercy. So now you're debt free. But you're debt free and broke. And homeless. And poor. And hungry. And you're not going to prison anymore. But you don't have anywhere else to go. But mercy is still good because you are no longer going to prison. Now imagine that someone comes along after you've been shown mercy and they get a hold of your bank account and they credit to your account $5 million and they buy you a house. That's grace. You got more than what you deserved. You were debt free and that's good but you were still broke and hurting and hungry and homeless. Now you're not just debt free and broke anymore. You're debt free and rich. So it is with a sinner who puts their faith in Jesus Christ. See it's not enough that God just forgive our sins. What's that mean? It means we don't go to hell. But we don't get into the presence of God who exudes righteousness and holiness because we're broke. We don't have a righteousness of our own. And that's where grace comes in. Mercy is the forgiveness of God. Grace means that God now approves you. And when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, more than the forgiveness of sins, more than mercy occurs in your life. In Romans chapter 5, verse 19, it says that through the disobedience of Adam, many were made sinners. But through the obedience of the one, many were made righteous. What do you think Jesus was doing for 30 years on this earth besides raising the dead and healing the sick? He was living perfectly in perfect obedience to a law and to commandments that we could not do. He was living in obedience to the Father and accumulating in his humanity a righteousness of his own so that when he died on the cross, he didn't just remove our sins from us, but he credited to our account righteousness. And so Christian, you don't stand before a God of righteousness broke and debt-free. You stand debt-free and rich with the righteousness of Jesus Christ upon you. Mercy is the forgiveness of God. Grace means you've been approved by God. Now that approval isn't of ourselves. You stand before God approved, but you're not approved because of anything that you've done. Three times, Paul says in Ephesians 2, in Christ, in Christ, raised with him in Christ. This is grace. God brings us from being traitors to being beloved children. Now, if that's not bizarre enough, think about this. In order to make that happen, God did this at the expense of his most beloved son. Why would he do that? I have some friends in this room, friends with kids, and they're friends that happen to love me and hang out with me. 
but they would never, ever, ever sacrifice their kid for me. If they did, that would be morbid and gross and disgusting. Why in the world would God sacrifice his own son for traitors? Because he loves us. I know he loves us, but does he not love his most beloved son most? Firstborn from all creation, before humanity, before the universe, before time existed, was God, three persons in one, in perfect harmony, perfect fellowship, perfect friendship. Does not the Father so love his most beloved son? Why would he do this at the expense of his most beloved son? For traitors. Paul tells us in verse 7. He says that so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace. God saves traitors at the expense of his beloved son so that in the ages to come he might show off his grace. In verse 8, we're even told to the extent that we have nothing to boast about. You see, God has so masterminded the salvation of a sinner that at the end of your salvation, you can do nothing. You can display nothing except the infinite worth of Jesus Christ who saved you. You don't even have a righteousness of your own to brag about. You must brag in God. So through grace, his compassionate, active, unswerving, resolute kindness to turn sinners back from the chosen course of their destruction, he brings traitors to enjoy everything about him. Friends, grace is awesome. Grace is awesome. And we're getting this from five verses in Ephesians chapter 2. You know grace is threaded throughout the entire Old Testament. It's interwoven through the entire New Testament. Grace is all over the Bible. Spend the rest of your life drinking deeply from the grace of God. We know that scripture in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 5 that we just read. For by grace we have been saved. Some of us have said it a thousand times. And in the English, it's in the past tense, for by grace we have been saved. And so some of us think of it in a way of, well, when I first gave my life to the Lord, then I was saved by grace, but now that I'm saved, I have no need of grace. Now I'm being sanctified. Grace was like level one Christianity, now I'm in the more advanced mode, and I don't know what's next, but it's not grace. Those sinners at the carpets, they need grace. I need sanctification. No. No. Paul, in the original language, says exactly this. By grace, you have been and continue to be saved by grace. That means in this building, the most seasoned saint is still utterly dependent upon the active, unswerving, compassionate choice of God to get into your business and keep you from going the direction that you would be inclined to go. Because it's God that's at work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. Grace is awesome. 
This is the type of stuff that fuels our passion in worship like no other. Martin Luther once said, I, if I am ignorant of God's works and power, I am ignorant of God himself. And if I do not know God, I cannot worship, I cannot praise, I can't give thanks, and I can't serve him, for I do not know how much I should attribute to myself and how much to him. You see, our default mode as people is to attribute as much as possible to ourselves, and we'll get away with attributing as much as of our salvation to ourselves as we can. But grace steps into your business, and it shreds any inkling of self-love that you have to your name, and it points your eyes in the direction of a very valuable Savior. Grace. This is the type of stuff that fans the flame of fervency for world mission. The saints who left their homes and their families to go to unreached people groups to spread the gospel for the rest of their life, do you think they'd flipped a coin? They were moved by the grace of God upon them. Mission in context. Missio Christi. Helping people on the margins, the down, the out, the hurting, the poor, the broke. I've noticed this about myself. I react very quickly to statistics. For example, in Ventura, there are over 8,000 homeless men and women on the streets right now. In the past year, over two dozen of them died from the cold. This is happening in our little village here. When I hear stuff like that, I get broken inside. Over 70% of the world's population lives on less than $2 a day. When I hear that and I look at what I have, I get broken inside. And my immediate inclination is to be on mission, but for what? My motivation is guilt. You see, I feel bad about what I have and how little they have. And so I'm not being motivated by grace. I'm being motivated by guilt. Guilt is a poor motivation. It'll last for about two days. And I will be on mission. And you might be on mission because you feel bad about what you have and what others do not have, but you'll find that you're not on mission for the glory of God. You're on mission to satisfy your own guilt. After which you'll go back to all of your stuff and never think about those people again because you feel better about yourself. Guilt is a poor motivator. And that's humanistic at best. I'm humanistic. Friends, grace destroys humanism. Every inkling of self-love, self-worth, pride, self-righteousness, and self-love, those things cannot breathe in the presence of real grace. Last thing it does is it just makes us hate sin. Jesus already said this. He said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We sin less, not because we feel guilty, like God is going to beat us with a stick. We sin less because we love God. In 1996, Comrade Dutch gave his life to Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And in an instant, A tyrant's whole world got turned upside down. 
Now, grace doesn't mean that his sins went unpunished. God punishes sin, and he'll punish mine. It doesn't mean when God shows grace upon a sinner that your sins get swept under the rug. They're dealt with. And Comrade Dutch, every act of torture and merciless killing that he committed with his own hands will be dealt with because God is a just judge. But here's what grace does. Grace transfers those sins from Dutch to somebody else. And everything that he did to deserve the wrath of God now gets poured out in its fierceness upon he who knew no sin, Jesus Christ the righteous. And you Christian, everything that you've ever done and ever will do has gotten poured out with the wrath of God upon Jesus Christ who knew no sin. And as much as some of us hate it, Dutch will stand before God completely exonerated. He may have to go through some trial here in this life, but before the ultimate judge, he will be exonerated and experiencing the weight of glory. That's a reckless display of God's love. Nobody in here would do that. That's reckless and risky on God's part. And we're told by Paul that he does it to brag about his grace. He does it to put it on display that the universe would marvel at it. Are you marveling at the grace of God this afternoon? What's ironic is that it's usually, or it tends to be people like Dutch, you know, the killers and the worst people in the world, that seem to see the priceless nature of God's grace the most. Why do you think that is? They seem to be the ones that treasure grace the most. Unfortunately, it's, it's some of us that consider ourselves to be less sinful that will react less passionate. The big sinners are passionate about the grace of God. Why? It's the religious scholars and the people that think they're less than them, a little better off, that prize it less. I want to close this afternoon with uh, Luke chapter 7. If you can turn there very quickly, Jesus gives us the answer. We're going to pick it up in verse 40. Before we get there, a little background. Jesus got invited to a little house party by Simon the Pharisee. And in that party, a prostitute broke through the doors and made a beeline for Jesus, as prostitutes often did when Jesus was around. The Pharisee, Simon, saw this. Prostitute came to the party, saw Jesus, fell at the feet of Jesus, poured perfume on Jesus, kissed Jesus' feet, and wept. And Jesus was blown away, but Simon the Pharisee saw this and said to himself in his heart, Jesus, Jesus, if Jesus was really a prophet, he would foresee and know what kind of woman is touching his feet right now. That's a hooker. Jesus 
If you were really a prophet, you would understand that a prostitute is touching you right now. Ugh, gross. Gosh, Jesus, you're no prophet. And Jesus Christ, being far more than a prophet, sees the thoughts of Simon the Pharisee and answers him as only Jesus can. In verse 40, he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. Simon replied, say it, teacher. A moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to repay, he graciously forgave them both. So which of them will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one who forgave more or who was forgiven more. Jesus said to him, you have judged correctly. Turning towards the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but she, since the time I came in, has not ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with perfume. For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. There's Jesus' answer. He who is forgiven little, loves little. Now, I'm of the opinion that nobody is forgiven little by God. And if I may be so bold, what some of us, myself included, and Simon the Pharisee have missed that the other sinners got is that all of us are guilty of mass crimes against God's holiness. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But of those that God saves, it seems that it's the ones who recognize their filth against the backdrop of God's holiness that will prize His grace the most. And God loves that. God loves to put His grace on display. God loves to put it on display for people to marvel at and to think bizarre. Do you marvel at the grace of God this afternoon? As we close today, I would ask those of you that maybe have not pledged allegiance to Christ and are on the outside looking in, salvation, according to the scriptures, is quite easy, so I'm not going to make it any more complex. Scripture says, repent. Repent of your sins. Repent of your faulty worldview. Repent of your worldly desires. Repent of everything in this world that made you so happy. Turn your back on it. And turn towards Jesus Christ as your ultimate treasure and joy. You will be saved. You might lose your money. You might lose your family. You might suffer because of it. You're not promised a cakewalk. But you're promised God in the flesh. To the rest of you, I'm assuming that you're my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And you have made a commitment to Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. I would say to you as a brother who's going to do it right alongside you during worship, examine your heart and put the sickness and the twistedness and the deadness of who you used to be up against the beauty of who God is and revel in the joy of knowing the grace of the living God.
For some of you, that's going to be easy, and for some of you, that's going to be hard. Some of you have been coming here for six years since reality started, and you've never left your seat, and you've never lifted your hands, you've never even sang a song. And there's no magic in sitting on these carpets. There's no magic in raising your hands. But for some reason, when we make our flesh submit by raising our hands in submission to the Spirit of God, for some reason, our heart loves to follow. And for you, you might need to get out of your seat today and worship God with total, utter abandon. The prostitute burst into the Pharisee's party, didn't care, and fell at the feet of Jesus and wept. Some of you maybe need to weep tears of joy. While Simon was complaining about Jesus, the prostitute was at Jesus' feet kissing them. You know, in the New Testament, anytime an author spoke of worship, they used a peculiar word in the Greek. It's called proskuneo. It means literally to kiss. And it has in mind a lowly, undeserving peasant kissing the hand of their king. Some of you have never been on these carpets before. I want to invite you to hit them hard and kiss your king. Whatever your condition, praise the name of Jesus Christ and be humbled to the dust, Christian, because because of all of these things, God enjoys you. God enjoys you. By grace, enjoy your God. Heavenly Father, we submit. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would do that thing you do. You come into groups of people and you convict of sin and righteousness and judgment. And we pray that you would do that today. That you would reveal to us exactly what we have been saved by and at what great a cost it came from God. As the psalmist said, the redemption of our soul is costly. Lord, show us with such clarity that cost that we would be able to stand, kneel, lay down, cry, weep, enjoy at the costliness of the grace of God. Thank you, Lord, that you save sinners. You didn't just stop with individual sinners. You will one day renew this universe in all of its brokenness, in all of its sadness, in the genocides, in the murders, and all of the things that are wrong. You will turn it around and everything in existence will bow like that prostitute before the God of our salvation. But we don't want to wait until then. Today we bow now. In Jesus' name. Some friends over to your left that are willing to pray for you with regard to anything in your life. We love to pray for our friends. And there's people over on your right that are willing to pray. There's communion up at the stage if you want to remember the cost by which you were redeemed. Praise the name of God.